Good morning, Mercy Hill. Happy to be with you again. Uh, I am Jonathan Brack, uh, student of Heather and John from 2003 to 2006. I was on the RUF uh, ministry team there as I was attending Texas A&M. So, as I said last week, uh, Heather and um, John taught me much of what I know, so if there's anything that sounds strange in this sermon, you can blame them. Um, it is the end of the year and the end of the holiday season, and we have no doubt partaken in feasts from Thanksgiving to Christmas. We have had a lot of rich food, chocolate, ham, turkey, a lot of gravy, and uh, my, my goal today is that at the end of our year, uh, we will truly feast upon this rich passage of Scripture. You know it well, the temptation passage, but I'm going to go heavy on the theology and the context of this passage as a feast at the end of the year. And more light on the application. The applications in this text are endless. They're innumerable. Uh, they teach us how to fight temptation uh, well. And, uh, but I, do, I don't want us to miss some of the beautiful, rich, feast-like uh, details that Luke writes for us in this passage. So that's what we're going to do this morning at the end of the year. Have a an end-of-the-year feast upon a rich passage of Scripture that we know uh, very well. So um, let me read the text for us, and then I'll, I'll pray again for our time together. This is Luke 4, starting at verse 1. This is the holy, inspired, and errant, perfect Word of God, so let us give it our full attention. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would listen this morning as uh, an act of worship, that you would uh, stir up our hearts, um, 
to truly consume your word and to apply it in our lives. But Lord, not for our glory, Lord, but for your glory alone. We pray that you would do this uh, this morning as we worship and as we hear what you have to say to us this morning, uh, that we might leave this place uh, ready for the battle against temptation in the new year, and that we might do so as an act of glorifying you for all that you've given us, namely your son. We pray these things in your heavenly name. Amen. So here are the main points of the sermon. There are two of them. Uh, Point one, Jesus is the true son. Sounds easy enough based on this passage that we read. Real easy point. Jesus is the true son. In other words, Jesus is not only a son, he is the son who is faithful and obedient. Point two, the true son is called to suffer. This sounds similar to last time I preached with you, which was suffering was stamped into his identity at his birth. Similar point two here, which is Jesus, the true son, is called to suffer. In other words, suffering is a non-negotiable in Jesus's ministry. Suffering is a part of his identity. Now, there are two subpoints of application. Application one, his victory is our victory. If you are in union with him, his victory is your victory. Because he is a son, you also are a son and daughter of the living God. Application two, in Christ, fight temptation as a true son or daughter. Fight temptation the way Jesus has taught us to fight temptation. Fight like your elder brother. Fight like your victorious king. That is the entire sermon. So some of you can dive into a nap while the rest of us will dive into the text. So point one, Jesus is the true son. The text demands us to see this in a myriad of ways. And here are just a few. Consider the immediate context of the temptation scene. Uh, Because this is a feast, I want you to understand the full context of what's happening here in this temptation. So just briefly flip back with me, if you have your text, if you have your Bible, flip back with me to Luke 3, verse 21 and 22. I'll read it for us. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Do you see, the last thing that Jesus audibly hears before our text was the voice of his Father saying, You are my beloved Son. The very next thing Jesus hears from Satan is if you are the son. You see the connection there? The identity of Jesus as the son, the beloved son, is the overarching principle Luke is highlighting for us in this text. The same M.O. of the devil did God really say 
is on scene. The voice of the Father at Jesus' baptism is what is questioned by the devil. You are the Son if you are the Son. Now, the voice of the Father is not our only contextual marker that we should consider. Where does Luke take us after we hear from the voice of heaven declaring, this is my beloved son? He takes us into this backwards genealogy in chapter 3, verse 23. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of genealogies, I'm not expecting them to show up in the middle of a narrative. They're usually around birth passages or the introductions to historical books. Genealogies don't just appear out of nowhere, inconveniently disrupting the flow of the narrative. So this should strike us as unusual, that Luke places this genealogy right here. So why does Luke do this? Why does he place the genealogy between Jesus being baptized and Jesus being tempted? Great question. I'm glad you asked. I have a prepared answer. There are many reasons, but I'm just going to highlight the main one. Look where the genealogy ends up. It is the last thing we read before the temptation narrative. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, Luke is forcing us to have Adam as the son of God on our minds as Jesus enters into the wilderness to be tested. Why is Luke wanting us to keep this in mind as we read the temptation narrative? Luke is demanding us not only to see Jesus as a son, but see Jesus as a son compared to Adam. He's wanting us to compare and contrast with the first son of God. Well, let's do this as we read the first temptation. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. In this comparison, notice, first off, the surroundings to Adam's temptation. Adam was in a garden. Jesus, in a wilderness. Adam was totally, fully nourished. Jesus, no food for 40 days, malnourished, weak, and hungry. Adam has a helper, Eve, Jesus, alone. This I mean, this doesn't even look like it is really being described as a fair fight. The stack, the, the deck is stacked against Jesus. And it looks that way because it is that way. And also notice in this comparison the object of temptation, food. Now, you might be thinking that this is a silly temptation. That's what I think, too. Don't worry. You're not alone. Like, Jesus can do whatever he wants to. You know, he can turn... Anything into anything at any time. So why is this a temptation? Well, it's actually very shrewd and crafty for two reasons. Not only did Satan thwart and usurp the first son of God with the temptation of food, he also thwarted and usurped the second son of God. The second son of God? 
Jesus? No, not Jesus. It's the second son of God. Exodus 4.22. The Lord says to Moses, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he might worship me. Israel, the typological son, Israel who was collectively called the son of God is set free from the slavery of Egypt. And no sooner did Israel step on the other side of the Red Sea than a complaint of grumbling well up within their hearts saying to Moses, Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Oh, the meat pots and the onions and the leeks. Oh, the food. How we wish we were back in Egypt. So the Lord mercifully and graciously gave them manna from heaven. And what did they say about this food? We loathe this worthless food. And interestingly, lo and behold, serpents show up and strike them. You see, when it comes to Satan tempting the sons of God, to partake in food out of unchecked impatience and unchecked desire, signaling a heart that questions the word of the Lord, the word that gives us life, the word that sustains us. When it comes to this temptation, Satan is undefeated until now. And all of biblical history, Satan always wins with a food temptation. Now, finally... Never before witness do we see a true son refuse the schemes of the devil and he responds the way they all should have responded, which is this, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. A direct quotation of Deuteronomy 8. A, a direct quotation of the words given to the son of God, Israel, reinforcing to Satan he is not only a better Adam, he is a better Israel. He is the true son, the greater Adam, and the greater Israel. And did you catch that response from Jesus? Man does not live by bread alone. That response assumes something. It assumes that you live and you have something by sustenance by something else other than bread. Now Luke gives us the shorter quotation here. Matthew gives us the fuller response. Matt, Matthew writes, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, we know that the temptation isn't about bread, right? The, the devil is cloaking the temptation in food. He's trying to hook Jesus by giving him something that is good, that is a blessing, that is a half-truth. He even sprinkles that temptation with an appeal to his power over creation, Right? command these stones to become bread. Power that he will use to bless others when he feeds 5,000 or turns water into wine. But notice what Jesus does not say to the devil. He doesn't say, no thanks, I'm good. If it were me, and what I'm expecting, and if this was written by, I don't know, the writers of Marvel or DC Comics, what you, we should expect to hear is stone to bread how about a full-blown bakery? Do you not know who I am? That's not what he gives. And that is also, also what Satan is trying to lure out of him. 
The, the temptation here is very subtle. It's a crafty temptation. Jesus, if you are the Son, then surely you can take matters into your own hands. Your Father, who loves you so much by His Spirit, drove you out here, and He hasn't even fed you in the last 40 years. He put Adam in a garden. He gave food to the grumbling Israelites, and He hasn't given you one thing. Satan is tempting Jesus to question his status by doubting his father's timing. It was a temptation towards impatience. It was a temptation to self-will. Take matters into your own hands, just like Adam and just like Israel. Now, later on, Jesus will take his disciples and others who are listening aside, and he'll say to them, you don't have to worry about clothes. You don't have to worry about what you eat and what you drink. You don't have to worry about any of that. And can you imagine for a minute that Jesus and his temptation had succumbed to the invitation of the devil and turned stones into bread? What would the disciples have said to Christ when he said, listen, I don't want you to worry about you know, what you have to eat or drink or what you have to wear. They would have said what we would have said. Oh, easy for you to say. Jesus, easy for you can turn this stone into a meat lover's pizza, and that's often our common reflex to our Lord. No one knows what it is like, but that's not true. He knows. He knows more than anyone what it's like to be you. One commentator writes that Jesus that we meet here is the Jesus who stands in the shadows of our lives and reaches out with his hands, and he says, when no one else understands, I understand. And if no one else has been there, I have been there. And furthermore, if you cling to me and hold to me, I will be with you. There, this is a result of his unwillingness to succumb to a real temptation directed to a real Christ, a real man. Did you catch the response from Jesus? Not God does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone. Jesus, fully God, fully man. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. Jesus says, no, the word, my Father's word, that is what gives life. I find it interesting that Moses, after writing down the whole law, he turns to Israel and he says these words. These are not empty words. These words are your life. And here we have Jesus, the true law keeper, the true and better Adam. So you begin to see hints of where we'll go with our second point. Jesus choosing trust over impatience, choosing his father's will over self-will cloaked in physical sustenance. Jesus living out, thy will be done, <clears throat> even to suffering and even to death. <clears throat> the second temptation is all about Jesus, who is called as a true son to suffer. You see, Satan surely realized after the first temptation who he's dealing with. This is no Adam. This is no Israel. This, the true son of God, the greater Adam and the greater Israel. This is why Satan ups the ante. The stakes get raised dramatically. From a few loaves of bread to all the kingdoms of the world. To quote one movie, wow, that escalated quickly. 
all the kingdoms of the world. It did escalate quickly. You just need to bow the knee. Now, you might be thinking, similar to the first temptation, this is a silly temptation. Doesn't Jesus, as God, own everything? Yes, from that standpoint, that is true. But Luke is highlighting something else for us. Remember the crafty and sly nature of the devil? He is no fool. He knows, the devil knows what is at stake. Notice the language he uses when he promises the kingdoms of the world. All authority and glory. Sounds awfully familiar, right? The devil is referencing the inheritance that is given to him by his father after his resurrection from the dead. The key to understanding what is happening in the second temptation is that Satan is offering him the inheritance promised to him by his father. You see, the devil is saying to Jesus, Oh, you're not interested in bread? I know what you seek. Here is what you've come for. This is why you have come down to seek these things, all glory, the inheritance promised to you by the Father. Look, it's beautiful. And look, you can have it right now, but you don't have to do all the suffering and dying stuff to obtain it. In fact, Jesus, you may be asking yourself, as I show this to you, you might be asking yourself, Father, is there any other way? Well, good news, Jesus, there is another way. It's right here. That is the force of the second temptation. And once again, Jesus sees right through it. He sees through the devil's schemes. He doesn't even reference the kingdoms of the world in his response. Instead, he says, it is written, another reference to Deuteronomy, this time to chapter 6, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. The son responds that he is not only the true son, he is the true son who will remain obedient even unto death on a cross. But I also want you to notice how Jesus, in this temptation, also turns the tables on the devil. You shall worship the Lord. Now, obviously, this is a commandment for us to follow and one in which Jesus perfectly performed. But the context for this quote in Deuteronomy 6 is given after the Lord reminds his people that the Lord has given them everything. Anything, any, anything that you have, anything that everyone has is actually as a result from the Lord who gives it. Therefore, you shall worship him. And that goes for the angels and the fallen angels as well. You, Satan, you ought to be worshiping the Lord, but instead you are quite literally only interested in self worship. What Jesus answered to the devil is what Adam should have done in the garden. Adam and Eve should have turned the tables on the serpent in the garden. Oh, this food makes you like God? Then you eat it. But they failed. But Jesus here not only corrects Satan, but in doing so, he reminds him of what he himself ought to be doing. So what is the devil going to do with this son? Two strikes, and he is the, and Jesus is still faithful. Two straight head blows to the devil with the use of the written word of God. 
The devil now knows that this is the true son and that the true son will remain obedient unto death. Now watch what the devil does next. He, he gets very crafty. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and then he quotes scripture at him. Do you find that interesting? The very thing that Jesus uses constantly, the devil tries to turn against Jesus. He tries to use the same weapon against Jesus. And notice the psalm that he chooses. Why this psalm? Out of all the references that Jesus, that uh, the devil could have chosen, why this psalm? Well, let's read this psalm in its fuller context. Verse 9 and 10 says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. The psalm is used by the devil to question, to cause doubt concerning the suffering of the true son. Now this is a parenthesis. I find it hermeneutically interesting that even the devil knows the Old Testament was written about Christ. Anyways, that's a parenthesis. You see how the devil is actually using this text, though? He says, wait, if you are the obedient son, the scriptures say that evil is not allowed to befall you. Suffering? Didn't the Father promise to keep you from suffering in this world? In fact, it says that if you were to hurl yourself from this high place, <clears throat> the angels are actually commanded to keep you from any harm. So come on, Jesus. Surely you have no problem demonstrating the truth of your Father's word. Do it right here for everyone to see. Both you and all these people will see who you really are. And once again, Jesus sees right through <clears throat> the temptation of the devil. Trying to twist the words of scripture, he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, he refuses to question the veracity of the word of God. He's not going to partake in a stunt or an experiment to test whether or not Scripture is true. But let's take a look in this fuller and richer context. Let's, let's see what's really happening in the psalm. Is the devil twisting the psalm? The psalm isn't saying, if you finish the psalm, the psalm isn't saying that the Son of God will never undergo suffering. The psalm says that the son will in fact be preserved for the mission of suffering, and then he will be delivered. Well, you might say, where does it say that? I didn't read that in the text. Well, let's go back to Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all their ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Let's keep reading this psalm. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Because he hold fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Do you see that direct quotation to Genesis 3 about the mission of the son to tread upon the serpent? I find it interesting that the devil left that part out. The direct reference to the son of God putting the devil who is a roaring lion and a crafty serpent underfoot. A work, a direct reference to the work of the Messiah on the cross as he crushes the devil and ends his reign over the world. The psalm guarantees 
that the son will suffer as he engages in battle with <clears throat> the devil. <clears throat> and what happens next? The psalm says, I will deliver him. It is a suffering unto glory psalm. Well, Luke ends the temptation narrative with this eerie and strange data bit. As we read, when the devil had ended every temptation, he left him for a more opportune time. A more opportune time. Well, the temptation to food comes up again. Give us more of the bread, as they say to Jesus, his disciples. The temptation to circumvent suffering comes up again, and it's offered to him by his best friend, Peter. Do not, you will not go to the cross, says Peter. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. So maybe this is what Luke is referring to. The temptation to show who he is by stunts and miracles is hurled at him again. So maybe that's what Luke is talking about. Maybe all of those things. But if you keep reading, there is no more face-to-face -face temptation between Jesus and the devil. But I believe that Luke gives us a very strong hint in this text for what he is referring to. And that hint is in the pattern of language from the evil one. If you are the son. And what would be that most opportune time? Well, I think we all know that most dreadful and opportune time. The time when he was not just hungry, but when he was thirsty. The time when he heard no voice from heaven saying, this is my son. No, on that day he heard nothing from heaven. But he did hear a voice. He heard many of them. They cried. If you are the son, save yourself. If you are the son, come down from the cross. You see, the devil's last evil attempt was to tempt the son through the very mouths and hearts of the people he was dying for. Hence, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. But Luke has that unique privilege of the gospel writers of knowing exactly what the last words were for Jesus as he died on our behalf, as he was being tempted by the devil and bearing the full wrath of God, taking our guilt and shame. It was not the last words from Jesus, according to Luke, were not, it is finished. <clears throat> the last works were not, <clears throat> forgive them. And it was not, today you will be with me in paradise. All things that Jesus said during his last hour. But his last words were this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Did you hear that? Father. In other words, Jesus never questioned his identity as the true son. And as the earthquake rumbled and split the temple curtain in two, what did the centurion say? But truly, this is the Son of God. The story doesn't end there, no. The psalm that the Lord refused to question was sure, was steadfast, was true. The Lord delivered him and raised him up in honor and gave him the name above every name. 
And he gave him all authority and glory of all the nations so that instead of bowing the knee to the devil, now every, be, every knee would bow to him. And here is the simple application. He did this work so that he would receive you, the nations, so that he would represent you, so that by his obedience you would no longer stand as accused by the devil, but stand as righteous before God. His victory is our victory. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Martin Luther sings, Christ Jesus, it is he. He did this work so that you who were once sons of disobedience following the prince of the power of the air would become sons of light. As Jesus' best friend writes, the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you know that? Do you know that in Christ you are greater than any temptation that confronts you? I know that none of us bat a thousand when it comes to temptation. However, that doesn't change the fact that you now have in Christ the power to kill sin and suffer righteously. The spirit that drove Christ into the wilderness to win the battle of temptation is the same spirit that is poured out on you that you may no longer be shifted like wheat from the schemes of the devil. And instead, we too, says Paul, can trample the serpent underfoot. We have that power facing every temptation. You try to fight the battle of any temptation on Satan's ground, you will lose, just like all the sons of God. But in Christ, Satan is now on foreign territory. Martin Luther has this helpful illustration. When I hear the devil knocking at the door of my heart, it is no longer I who answer. But Jesus comes to the door and he says, how can I help you? The devil says, I'm here for the owner of the house. And Jesus says, you are talking to him. The good news is this, by your union with Christ, you are no longer accused by the devil before the Father, but you are a son of God with the power to resist temptation. How do we do that? How do we fight temptation? Application two. You do it the very same way Jesus did. There are many ways to apply that principle, but here's one. Fight temptation the way that he fought temptation with Scripture. Did you notice that in our text? Every single temptation from the devil is met with the written words of God. If Jesus' strategy to fight temptation is to use Scripture as his sword and shield, it should be our strategy. Consume it. Get it on your mind at the beginning and end of every single day. And when the six schemes of the devil begin to surround you, the muscle memory of that consumed scripture is easily drawn and at the ready. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. This is the simple 
yet profoundly wise method of refusing temptation. It's the method of avoiding idolatry, lust, pride, doubt, envy, covetousness, helpless despair, grumbling, backbiting, gossip, treachery, laziness. The response to all of these temptations is, it is written. Don't think for a moment that you could imagine a better method of avoiding temptation than the one employed by him who never gave in to temptation. And why do we believe this? Because scripture is not a dead word dreamt up by foolish man. It is a living, active word. It has the power to give you both wisdom and to conform your heart to be like Christ. It is able to pierce to the divisions of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The world will say to you, this year, 2024, trust your own discernment. You do you. Trust your own instincts. Lean on your own understanding this year. And that is a sure way to fall straight into temptation. You need someone. And you need someone who is greater than you. And you need something that is greater than you. And that someone is Christ. And that something is his word. The one who was hungry is now he who has the right to eat from the seed of life. He who was in the wilderness is now he who sits at the right hand of God. And he does not remain silent. But indeed, because you are sons and daughters, his father has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father.